G'day guys, welcome to this episode of Aussie English. So today I have an interview episode with you all about IELTS. And we do mention the PTE and some of the other tests as well. But um, yeah, I thought I would get on my fiance's old English teacher from Townsville, Kit. And he is from the Townsville International English School. And Kel had been harassing me for a while to get him on the podcast and saying he was an amazing guy, really good teacher, uh, has a lot to say, a lot of knowledge about IELTS and some of these other exams as well. And so, I thought it would be awesome to get him on and just chat to him about how to prepare for the IELTS, what to expect, how to do well on the IELTS, and hopefully put a few of your concerns at ease. Anyway, without any further ado, let's just get into this interview today with Kit from the Townsville International English School. G'day guys, welcome to this video, welcome to this interview of Aussie English. Today I have Kit from Townsville International English School with me and he is my fiance's old English teacher. So, Kit, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. So, I guess, first of all, how did Kel get so good at English? What, what's your secret? <laughs> um, uh, there's a few different things, I guess, to answer that question. That's um, Kel herself and, and her um, propensity or ability to pick up the language. Um, but, yeah, hopefully I think there was an element of the school and, and, and what we do up here um, in her success um, as well. So, I think, yeah, there's a few things involved in that. Well, that's what I'm always saying when I hear, like, cause she told me when she got here, she spoke no English, at least, you know, I have no idea, but she said she spoke none, very limited. Very, very limited. I remember when, when, when she first came in, um, we're doing our placement test and we happened to have tablet chairs, um, in the classroom that she was doing the test. And I remember asking her just a simple question, are you left-handed or right-handed? And, you know, I was just met with this complete blank sort of, you know, expression and, and, you know, from that point, it was sort of obvious, okay, well, she's going to be pretty low. So, and yeah, no, she tested at a beginner level when she started. Um, and we had her for, I don't know, however long it was. Um, but, you know, by the end, by now, you know, like she's, yeah, she's brilliant. You know, she, she speaks very much like a native speaker, I would say. Um, you know, with her, her vocab is, you know, incredible. Um, and yeah, so I don't know, I think, Hakiel is a bit, bit of an exception in some ways, you know, like I think she's naturally talented at languages, which really helped a lot. Um, and she has a great memory. Um, I always, I always think that, um, you know, when I have students with a, a really good memory, that goes such a long way, um, in learning a language. Um, so that also helped. Um, but yeah, hopefully, you know, we played a part in, in her, her progression and, and where she's at now too. Yeah, definitely. And I just think it's so good that you can see how much someone can, attain in just two years you know if they work work their ass off she was saying she read 30 books in a year or something and was just constantly studying so it's good to know that you know obviously talent's part of it but hard work is a massive part of it as well absolutely agree and she was really a a very hard-working student so um she really sort of you know put her, her, her best foot forward in everything that she did she was always doing homework always asking for for extra stuff to do so um, yeah, no, it does, definitely goes a long way. I think, you know, the, the attitude and the, the mentality for wanting to improve as well was there with, with Hakiel. So, yeah, no, definitely. I know she's a bit of a champ. But um, more, less about her, more about you, Kit. Um, how did you end up doing what you're doing, where you're doing it? You know, can you tell me the story of, of how you ended up in Townsville teaching English in a school? 
Absolutely, yeah. So I spent most of my, my younger years in Townsville. Actually, I grew up in Townsville. I was born in Papua New Guinea, but then came back and um, lived in Townsville with my parents, so grew up here. Um, went to university down in Brisbane and then landed a, a dream sort of job um, up here in Townsville at a, a local high school um, and did that for about five years. Um, and and I loved it. You know, like I had a great job. I had um, lovely students, beautiful um, sort of facilities and, you know, a great place to teach. However, um, I sort of felt over that time that my um, – my personal um, idea of what a good education is was a little bit divergent to what was going on at the school. You know, that the focus of the school was very much on um, students getting, you know, A's and, you know, producing results that, you know, maybe look good on paper, but I think in reality doesn't necessarily, um, you know, go with a, a, what I would consider a, a good or an effective education. So I sort of... Um, in many ways, I sort of thought, okay, well, you know, if if I can't um, achieve what I want to achieve as an educator within that system, that we would branch out and start our own school. Um, one of the things that sort of, you know, the final straw that, that broke the camel's back was um, I had 18 classes um, that I taught. I was a middle school teacher, so 18 separate um, uh, classes of students. Yeah, because yeah, it, it was ridiculous. Um, and I sort of... Uh, I went to the principal actually the, the year before I left and, and I said, listen, it's just it's too many. You know, like I I was I was capable of, of teaching that many students but and knowing individuals for that, that many students, but it was just too much. You know, like and how can was, you connect too though? I mean you might be able to remember their name, but how much time can you give absolutely. them? Absolutely. Yeah, totally. And that's what it was. It was about sort of, you know, like yeah, I, I knew the students, but did I? Could I really connect and could I really make a difference for them? No, it was too much. And and so I said, you know, give me a couple less classes or one less class next year, and 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 I'm I'm guarantee you we can do more with these students. But I came back the next year and I think I had um, one extra class. So I sort of I said at the start of that year, you know, that's enough. You know, it sort of it it didn't really sort of match with with my philosophy of education. So um, my wife is is also a teacher, um, and so. We basically had a, a, a discussion at the start of that year and said, well, you know, if this is not, you know, if this doesn't reflect who we are as educators, then let's create a school, you know, that does. So yeah, we, um, we opened ties, um, in about, yeah, 10 years ago now. Um, and we've been going ever since. And we basically, um, created everything from what we wanted to reflect, you know, as, as educators and what we thought was a, um, a great education. So, you know, we have small class sizes um, with a, a maximum of 18 students. Um, but typically, you know, we have between sort of, you know, maybe 12 or 14 students in the class. Um, we, you know, have a lot of individualised, you know, focus within the class, a lot of attention directly with our students. And, and you know, maybe, you know, going back to, to Hakiel's example, you know, maybe that is one of the reasons why, you know, she, for example, improved so much is that we're really able to, to make a difference in our students' um, lives and in their obviously their English um, ability, so yeah, and everything we do here works from that that philosophy and that core um, driving principle that we started the school with. So, what kind of advice would you have for people um, thinking about getting into schools and working out whether a school is going to be good, whether it's 
in general or just for them? Like, are there things, are there warning signs? Are there things that they can find out about different schools? Or you, it's just a crapshoot where you have to just hope? I mean, uh, if, if at the end of the day, if you can talk to a teacher who has been in that particular school for a, a period of time and you can get honest feedback from them, I think that's a good place to start, but it's not always easy um, to do that. Um, you know, I think a lot of schools on the outside um, look incredible. You know, in this particular school that I was at, it was incredible and, you know, beautiful school, beautiful facilities and everything. But I don't think you can really get a sense of the the true culture or the underlying culture of, a, of an education establishment until you're actually there teaching. So, it's, yeah, it's a hard one. That's funny. That's kind of like an anecdote I know about... Um one of my friends is really into cars and he loves Ferraris. And I remember he uh, was with a friend looking for a Ferrari for him. He's, he's not rich, but the friend was. And they test drove Shane Warne's old Ferrari. Shane Warne's a cricketer in Australia. And it looked amazing. And then they got in it and there were cigarette burns in the leather. <laughs> it had been thrashed. It had been destroyed. But it was like they had no idea until they got in the car that it was a piece of junk. So it's a bit like that, unfortunately, is it that you sort of have to show up and and do it and then you'll find out. So what would you say, what are the key things that, that your school does or, or focuses on that um, enable students to sort of flourish? Yeah, sure. So one of our sort of our key principles is to understand the needs, interests and motivations of every student and then to use that within the classroom. Um, you know, I always think if you can, you know, really sort of um, – tailor your your classroom to to what your students need, what their interests are, what their motivations are. You can teach them anything and everything, you know, like, um, you know, whatever, if you're, you know, you're interested in cars, you know, and you're, you're teaching comparatives and superlatives, you know, obviously some some comparison between different models, you know, or different aspects of a car, you're going to get that person's attention. And I think it's, it's not something that's, you know, um, you can't really say there's a, a, you know, a generic way, I guess, of, of teaching a particular topic, but if you understand each individual student and their needs, interests, and motivations, I think you can teach them anything. So. That's so true. I think you do. I like thinking back to high school. The teachers that I really admired and, and enjoyed learning from were those who could connect with me on a personal level, as opposed to just this is how I teach, and the students need to adjust to my methods. Yeah, absolutely. And so, Thanks. Townsville. How do you get students in Townsville? Like. I would have, before meeting Hakel, I would have thought, no one's going to Townsville. It's so sure. far north in Queensland. Yep. What are the reasons for people to obviously go to Townsville and to think about it as a location to get work or to um, learn English? What are the benefits of going to Townsville? Absolutely. Well, I mean, it's a hard one because, you know, we we aren't really well known, um, you know, internationally. Um, but I think in, in many ways that's it's a benefit for our students. Um, you know, if you compare the cost of living, for example, you know, amongst bigger, larger cities in Australia like Brisbane or Sydney or Melbourne, the cost of living in Townsville is significantly cheaper. So I think that's a, a huge advantage. Um, there's So we're sort of big enough that we have um, a variety of different industries um, where students can work, yet we don't have the high level of competition that some of the bigger cities have as well. So there's a lot of jobs. Um, the biggest hurdle for us, I guess, is the fact that we're relatively unknown globally. You know, like you sort of talk to anyone from overseas about Australia and, you know, they'll mention Sydney, of course, and, you know, Melbourne and, I guess, Brisbane and Cairns and, and other centres, but um, not a lot of them know about Townsville. So 
Um, a lot of our students come from word of mouth, so ex-students that have recommended friends or family members to come and study. Um, we also work with education agents, um, both in Australia and abroad, um, who uh, recommend our school to students um, from overseas. Um, but, yeah, it's probably the the most difficult thing for us is um, the fact that, yeah, Townsville is so unknown yeah. uh, globally. So, yeah. Does that so make it easier to get to, though? If, you, if it's because it's unknown and there are fewer people there, is it easier for students to get visas or to get positions at schools and stuff like that there? Or? It's not that the, I mean, the, the visa um, regulations are the same regardless of, you know, where you're located for, in terms of the student visa. Ah, um, okay, gotcha. So, yeah, because yeah, I was so, thinking rural areas, but is that work-related more? Yeah, it's more work-related. Um, but there are, I mean, we, you know, there's a lot of students that have moved to Townsville, you know, to get points for visas and things like that. But, no, for a student visa, it's exactly the same. Um, yeah, I guess it's, we're sort of like, we, 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 we talk about Townsville as being, you know, a, a small city or a large country town, you know, so it's sort of, it doesn't match every student, you know, like some students really want, you know, the nightlife of a big city, you know, they want, um, you know, their huge shopping centres and things like that. And, and we don't sort of offer that, you know, like we're sort of, we're, we're more for students that, you know, really want that sort of Australian experience and really immersive in the culture um, and, you know, serious about improving, you know. Um, and I think Hakiel's probably, you know, as a as a student, is probably one of the best ones to sort of um, ask about that, you know, like what was her experience of, of living in a, a I small I think she life. said it was the deep end of the pool. She got chucked in the deep end and was like, my God, all these people speak with the strongest accent and you it's sink or swim. You either learn that accent <laughs> and, and now her listening comprehension's off the charts. <laughs> it is, totally. Um, and I think there's a lot more opportunities in a, a sort of a regional or, you know, more um, rural, although I wouldn't say we're rural, but a regional area like Townsville, um, there's more opportunities to to get to know the locals, to, you know, to have that one-on-one with people and, and connect with the local community, which, like, you do get in a big city, city, don't get me wrong, but I just think that there's more opportunities for it in a smaller place. So, and so yeah. I guess moving on to the different kinds of exams and, and things that you're preparing students for, can you talk about which ones uh, exist and the pros and cons of doing each one? Which are the, which are the ones that your students focus on mainly? Yeah, so we're, our main focus is IELTS, um, IELTS preparation. We have an, an IELTS testing centre in Townsville. Um, we don't actually have a, a PTE test centre at the moment, so students, if they choose PTE, have to travel to Brisbane or Sydney, which adds a, a bit of an expense to it. Um, but, yeah, that, that's the other option. So you've got IELTS and you've got PTE. Um, then you've got a few other um, tests that are more sort of job-related, like you have OET, the Occupational English Test for nurses and doctors and, and healthcare professionals, um, and obviously, you know, TOEFL and TOEIC and, and all the rest of them. But, yeah, our main focus is on IELTS preparation um, specifically. But in terms of, like, the two big comparable ones, it would be PTE and IELTS. And what are the benefits? What are the, what are the reasons you would pick one over the other? Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, they're both a test of a student's English language ability. So, you know, like a lot of students come to me and say, which one's easier, kit? You know, which one should I sort of choose to do? And to be honest, you know, it's, in my opinion, it's a much of a muchness. You know, like there might be slight benefits for some students to do PTE, for example, if they're good at keyboards and good at typing, 
and their running isn't very good, yeah, that's definitely going to be a slight advantage for PTU. Um, however, in saying that, you know, like I think that the advantage is so small that it's, it, I wouldn't even worry about it. You know what I mean? So at the end of the day, for me, it's not about necessarily which test is easier, but about preparing your, you know, general English ability or language ability to pass either test, if you know what I mean. That's it. And I think it was one of those things that I didn't, I hadn't really had that much experience with understanding how it exactly worked, either the PTA or the IELTS, but you actually need to be studying not just English, but the specific exams, right? So that's a key thing that a lot of English learning students don't realize when they're trying to prepare for these exams. They don't realize that learning English is one part, right? But you need to also be focusing on what do I need to be able to do in this exam to get a good score. Absolutely. And I mean, obvious difference between the two with IELTS being paper-based and um, PTE being computer-based. However, in saying that um, IELTS also does have computer-based versions, I think in Melbourne and Sydney and perhaps um, Brisbane, I'm not 100% sure, but there is a computer-based version as well. Um, I guess another benefit of PTE is the time that it takes to get the results. Um, It's quicker than IELTS and things like that. But I mean, at the end of the day, they're both a test of your English language ability. So, you know, I think either or is an option if you have both. Do you know the rough prices for each of them and uh, how long they're about the same? Yeah, exactly, in terms of price. I mean, in some areas, IELTS um, is more expensive if it's administered at a um, location that isn't a, you know, principal location, but... Um, generally speaking, they're both, you know, 330-ish dollars. Um, so yeah, no real difference in price point. Um, just the, the fact that, um, PTE, the results come out quicker than IELTS. Um, although I think IELTS is probably going to up their game and, and change that, um, soon with, you know, having a computer-based version as well. Um, what else? Um, PTE, you can choose different times to do the test. Um, and there's more frequent tests. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, they're, they're pretty much apart from that. You know, they're both a test of, you know, reading, writing, listening and speaking. Um, you know, your vocab needs to be really good. Um, so, yeah, I would say both are much of a muchness in my opinion. Oh, brilliant. And so with IELTS, what different kinds of exams for IELTS exist and what are the benefits or what are the reasons that you would do one over the other? Sure. So you've got the general and the academic module. Um, the academic module is primarily used for gaining entry to, to TAFE, like vocational education or universities, um, or for recognition to work in particular jobs. Like as a teacher, for example, um, you have to do an academic IELTS test for teacher registration or as a nurse or a doctor or another healthcare professional. Um, that's where academic is you know, the, the one that you need to do. The general module is more commonly used for migration purposes um, to prove, you know, the level of English that a person has and to get different points. Um, they get, you know, different levels within the nine-band um, score for IELTS. Um, having said that, um, it's interesting. I find some students actually get higher scores in the academic module um, than they do in the general module. So, you know, in some ways it's actually a benefit for some students to do the academic for PR, for residency purposes, um, just depending on the student. You know, like if I have, 
let's say, for example, um, someone that has studied at university in, in Australia and they've done accounting or whatever it is, um, I often would recommend to them do the academic version because of the, the different scale um, for reading in particular. Um, it's a lot eas- easier in a sense or you can make more mistakes to get a higher score in the academic than in general. Yeah. And so how do they differ exactly? Is it different kinds of language? I mean, obviously it's academic language, but I mean, how foreign is that from the general one? If you're just say learning English generally, are you going to be able to do the academic one if you wanted, or you would need to sort of have some kind of experience in academic English at university or something? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So, I mean, I guess at the end of the day, it's like when I look at a student and if they have the option of doing the academic or general, it's about sort of identifying that student's past experience of English and then which one is going to better suit suit them and, and what they need to do. So, yeah, so if I have a student that studied at, at university level in Australia, for example, then I often recommend to them to do the academic version of the test um, just because I often find that they get a higher score actually than the general um, so, yeah, I guess it, it depends on the, uh, the student um, and a, a sort of case-by-case basis. Oh, brilliant. And so how are the exams scored and what are the kinds of scores and what do they mean, I guess? What do you sort of, what's the minimum to say, be able to do, you know, whatever it is that you need to do in Australia, whether it's studying or residency or whatever? Sure. So it's scored on a, a nine um, sort of band scale, 9.0 being the equivalent of a native speaker um, and then, each level going down has a different sort of a descriptor as to the, the language ability of the student. Um, different levels are required for different things. So if you have, you know, for example, as a teacher, um, if someone comes from abroad who wants to teach in Australia, in most cases they need an uh, 8.0 in each. So out of the listening, reading, writing and speaking, they'll need an 8.0 minimum in each, which is really quite a high level to get their teacher registration. I always wonder if I'd score that if I just went in blind and did the test. <laughs> yet, um, I mean, I'm sure you would. Um, I have had a few cases over the years where I've had native speakers actually come to me because they've failed the test. But in most cases, it's just because they didn't really understand the format or what was being asked of the test rather than their ability. Which emphasises the importance in studying how to actually complete the exam, right? Absolutely, 100%. You know, like, um, it's sort of... I guess it's a tricky one. Most of my students, when they came in with doing IELTS preparation, they want to know straight away what are the tips, what are the tricks, what are the techniques. And that's important. Don't get me wrong. You know, like it's it's quite a specific test and written in a particular way. And actually there's a benefit to that in my opinion because if you understand the test, you can answer the questions much more effectively. However, in saying that, if a student doesn't have the general English language level or ability right, you know, I can talk about tips and, and tricks and techniques till I'm blue in the face and it's not going to make any difference. So, so you, need that, you need that ability to be able to improvise right on the spot. You're not necessarily going to get the exact questions you've been studying, but you need to be able to know, okay, how do I respond to this? What's needed? 100%. Um, going back to the different levels required for different things, um, for nurses, for example, in Australia, they have to do, if they do the IELTS test for their registration, they have to do the academic module and they have to get a 7.0 in each band with nothing lower than a 7. Um, some courses at university ask for a 6 overall, some ask for a 6.5, some ask for a 7. just depends on the university and the particular course. But for any of those examples, it has to be an academic test. Um, for 
more for migration purposes. Um, students have the choice of general or academic. Um, and the level that students get helps them with different points with applying for residency. So, you know, if they can score higher, for example, on academic, then I often say, well, you know, you're crazy not to do it. You know what I mean? So, um, and it's the good thing with academic that it obviously applies. It, it covers what general covers and more. It does to some extent. Yeah. I mean, the only sort of issue, I guess, sometimes with IELTS is that the results are only valid for two years. So you sort of, yeah, you have to sort of think about time frames and, you know, like I've got, you know, a student at the moment, for example, who um, has recently passed um, to get into university um, to study nursing and she got a, a 7.0 in each and a couple of higher results, which was high enough for her to get into university, but because it's only valid for two years, unfortunately, at the end, to get her um, qualifications recognised and her um, her registration as a nurse, she'll have to do the test again, which is a bit frustrating. Of course it is, absolutely. Yeah. But, I mean, I can sort of, I can understand, aside from obviously wanting more people to do the test more often to get money, I can imagine, like, you're, if you were to do the IELTS and then straight away leave and not speak English for two years, I can imagine that your English can deteriorate, as my <laughs> my French has, for example, since not speaking it for the last two or so years. But, yeah. but it's, yeah, it's frustrating as well for a lot of students, you know, that, that they have to do it again if, if they need it for registration purposes or something. But Far out. Uh, so yeah. what would you say is the best way to prepare for IELTS? Is it that you definitely need to go to a school? Is it that you don't need a school? Like, if you were to give advice to someone who has obviously organised getting a visa and coming to Australia to study, yep. whatever it is, what's the best way to go about studying for IELTS? Sure, absolutely. So it's a tricky one. I mean, I think, you know, most people can attain a certain level of language ability on their own, you know, in isolation. But I think when you sort of, you know, you're talking about reaching that next level, like, you know, a lot of students, you know, improve really quickly from sort of a beginner to an intermediate level of, of language ability, but then they reach that plateau and they get really stuck there. And I think um, any sort of preparation for any test like IELTS sort of in the same way as, you know, a student reaching a plateau, they need to have someone that's looking at their, their level of English or, you know, the, the good things they're doing or the mistakes that they're making, a, a coach, a trainer, someone that can look at them and say, well, yeah, okay, you do this great, but, you know, if you want to attain that next level, you need to focus on your, your articles or you need to focus on your pronunciation of this particular sound. Um, I think in isolation, it's really difficult for most students to attain, you know, a 7.0, for example, or higher. Um it's not impossible, you know, like there's a lot of self-study materials out there, but I really do feel like you need that feedback um, and that continual feedback. Force, right, pushing you and giving yeah. you, as you say, feedback on the things you're screwing up, which you can't necessarily get yourself, you know. Absolutely, yeah. So, yeah, so I think, yeah, having someone that knows the test um, and is able to sort of, you know, identify your weaknesses and, and where you need to work on and then, you know, to give you continual sort of feedback to reach that next level, I think that's really, really important. Um, and, you know, there's obviously face-to-face classes, there's online providers, there's lots of different options, but I think so long as you have someone, you know, a coach, a mentor, a teacher, someone giving you that feedback, that's really, really important. And so how long does it normally take people to prepare for the exam, you know, for, say, someone like Hakel who had zero experience, it obviously took a year or two, 
Um, can you compare her to, say, someone who does have, say, an intermediate level before they arrive in Australia sure. and what each person would need to do to, to apply for or get a good score on the IELTS? Yeah, it's, it's a hard question to answer. Um, you know, it's sort of like the how long is a piece of string, but, um, you know, because it all comes down to, you know, individual aptitude and how much they apply themselves and a lot of different factors. Um, and also it comes down to the level, you know, like, um, once you're talking about, you know, like a 7.0 or an 8.0 and those high levels, the, the differences between them and those subtleties of the language and getting a student to reach that level takes a lot more work. You know, it's almost like that last 10% takes 90% of the effort to So, um, so it depends on the level of the student when they start, I guess, and, and how high they want to get. Um, and obviously the aptitude and the attitude and, and all those sorts of things as well. Um, but generally speaking, um, you know, we get lots of students that perhaps come in at an intermediate level um, and, you know, maybe need to get a, a 7.0, for example. Um, in most cases, I would sort of recommend one or two terms to sort of to get to that level. Um <laughs> No, no, for us it's 11 weeks, so, yeah, four 11-week terms during the year. Um, so, yeah, generally speaking, probably, yeah, one to two two terms to, to get to that level, um, but it depends on the student. I mean, you know, I have, I've had some that, you know, have done brilliantly, like I had um, a French student last year who, before studying with us, um, did an arts test and got a 6.0 overall, um, studied with us for six months, and by the end of the um, the year or the six months, um, she got like an 8.0 um, overall with a couple of 8.5s and 7.5s. So, you know, which is, that's a really, really high level. Um, so, and that's not uncommon too. I, I actually had a, um, uh, a girl from Colombia um, who recently did the test and, and again passed it at 8.0 overall. So, I mean, those high levels are harder to get to because of the, the subtleties and, you know, the complexities of getting there. But, um, generally speaking, one term, most students go up by one level. So if I have a student starts at a 5.0 at the start of a term, generally speaking, they should be up to a 6.0 by the end of the term. But it depends on every student. Some are quicker, some are smaller. And so what's normally the most difficult part too for people? I've heard that writing and, and speaking tend to be the most difficult parts where you've got to produce, you're not reading and you're not listening. Is that true? <laughs> Yes and no. Um, I think it depends on the individual so much. Um, and it depends on, you know, to some extent, the the first language, um, the country, the culture, so many different things. You know, like I, I might find, um, you know, for example, maybe, you know, an Italian, you know, might struggle with the reading part, whereas a, a Brazilian student might struggle with the writing. I think it depends too much on the individual. Um, you know, I think that there is definitely within IELTS, there's a, um, a level that a lot of students get stuck at in academic, which is 6.5. You know, you get a lot of students that are achieving sevens or higher in, you know, speaking and, and reading and listening, but that writing of a 6.5, they really get stuck on that. That's the story that I've heard of the writing yeah. constantly bringing the overall score down and that's what's yeah. screwing them over. Absolutely. And, you know, that 7.0 in academic is a real sort of gateway mark, you know, for a lot of different things. So, but in saying that, you know, like I think if you have you know, a teacher who is very familiar with the writing criteria and how it's marked, and they give you very specific feedback, you know, um, on your task response, on your grammar, 
on your coherence and cohesion, um, on your, your spelling, your vocab, for example, and they say to you, okay, well, you know, based on this task response, this is bringing you down to a 6.5 or based on, you know, maybe you're making the same grammatical errors too many times or whatever it is. I think if you have that direct feedback and you can identify those mistakes, then, you know, it's not really that hard. It's just that you need someone to give that feedback. And I think a lot of students miss that, unfortunately. And, you know, I think if you're studying in a really large classroom, it's really difficult for a teacher to provide that as well. I think having that sort of individualised and one-on-one sort of attention within a smaller class or a smaller school, for me anyway, I think that makes the biggest difference. You know, like, um, yeah, I, I think that that's that's what makes the difference. Awesome. And so, okay, so you're you're preparing for an exam. What is, instead of asking you for, um, you know, the tricks and tips, what are things that people who fail do too much of? What is the kind of person or what are the kinds of habits or things that someone who is going to not score very high, even if they have the ability, what are the kinds of things that they're doing with regards to, say, study outside of class and then when they're in the exam themselves? Are there any things that you would say, look, that's a no-no, you need to not do that, you need to avoid this? Um. Yes and no. I mean, I think, again, it comes back to the individual um, and being able to sort of identify with that student and help them to sort of understand where they're making their mistakes. And I don't know if there's, like, a generalised... If I can generalise about that, if you know what I mean. Like, it just... It really depends on on each individual. Um, But, I mean, so long as a student has an awareness of where they're making mistakes and why they're, you know, not achieving a particular level that they need... And then a given, you know, constructive feedback as to how to fix that and, you know, that continual process. I think that's, at the end of the day, that's the most important thing. Is there a trick to fostering that? Because I always get questions about um, building confidence and how do I speak English more confidently? And it is, it feels like quite often the answer is just do it, you know, which isn't necessarily a um, very productive and actionable piece of advice. But is it just a case of you just need to start trying and it's only going to get easier with regards to building confidence uh, for these exams or for just speaking in general? I think building confidence is, again, comes down to the individual. You know, like I think there are some some nationalities, I could say, that are, are naturally or generally quite confident. Um, and, that's, yeah. <laughs> Um, having said that, you know, not all Brazilians are, you know, out there and, and extroverts, you know, like the, the stereotype, you know. So I think it's easy sometimes a little bit to stereotype in that way. But yeah, okay, if I, if I generalize, there are, there are some, um, student nationalities that I teach that are naturally more extrovert. And I think that that, that does help them in some ways to pick up the language quicker. However, in other ways, I think it's also a burden to their language learning ability, um, because quite often, that confidence, um, unfortunately, can equate also with continually making the same mistakes and not really working on it and focusing on it, you know. I always think if I could take, you know, maybe a, a South American brain and an Asian brain and put them together, you'd have the perfect language learner. Um, but unfortunately, we're not like that, you know. And 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 that's it's not necessarily a bad thing too, you know. Like we, um, we all bring our own, you know, baggage, if you like, um, to, to learning a second language. And I think though, if you, if you're able to identify those areas of your language and your language learning ability and then, you know, work on the ones that you're weak at, then yeah, you're going to improve in the end. So yeah, so if you have a, a, a student who's typically, you know, maybe more shy than other students, 
I guess for me, um, it's about building that confidence within the classroom. It's about, um, you know, as a teacher, for example, if I have a, you know, like when I ask students questions, I try as much as I can to ask a question that I know they're capable of answering. You know, like I don't want to put a, a student on the spot and make them yeah. nervous about not knowing it. So I guess a lot of it comes down to your the student's experience of learning the language as well. Um, I think, you know, a great teacher can make an amazing difference for a student, but then I think as well, unfortunately, a poor teacher can, can also have the opposite effect. Um, so, yeah, if I have a student that's a little bit, you know, more introvert and, and, and nervous about the language, then for me it's about identifying, like I said at the start, like their needs, interests and motivations. So, you know, like if I find that they're particularly interested in sport or music or, you know, some particular topic and I use that in the classroom, that's immediately going to start building that confidence, I think, for them um, in being able to, to, to use the language. So, yeah, I guess once again, it comes comes back to the individual um, and I guess as a teacher, being able to understand that, that person and incorporate as much of them into the classroom as you possibly can. What advice would you have for someone on not, well, if you have any advice left over for doing well on the IELTS, but also just doing well with regards to their experience learning English in Australia, are there any things that you would suggest um, students try and focus on or keep in mind when they come to Australia and study English or think about doing the IELTS? Absolutely. Well, I mean, apart from, from coming to Townsville to study English at Townsville International English School. <laughs> no, but uh, honestly, I think do your research. Um, you know, find a school that, that sort of matches or find a location in a school that matches, you know, what you want um, to get out of the experience. Um, and, yeah, I guess um, take an interest as well. You know, like I find students that, that, that take an interest in the learning process do a lot better than those students that, you know, are, are a little bit disinterested. So it's a two-way street. You know, like I think um, teachers can – can do a lot to, to help that. But I also think, you know, at the end of the day, it's about that student's um, attitude towards learning, learning as well. And, I mean, for Hakiel, for example, that's one thing that is really in her favour. You know, like she, I think, very much had a, um, a thirst for knowledge and a, a passion for learning the language. And I, I think that shows in, in how quickly and how effectively, you know, she, she picked up the language. Um, so, yeah, I guess um, advice to people, Probably, yeah, do your research before you come. Try to choose a place that matches your, um, you know, what you want to get out of the, the experience. Um, and then once you actually arrive and, and get in the classroom, try to sort of immerse yourself, you know, like um, when the school does outings or excursions, get involved with it. When they do, you know, offer conversation classes in the afternoons or whatever, get involved in it and and try to take an interest in everything, you know, ask questions. Um, I think that goes a long way. Awesome. Well, Kit, thank you so much. Again, Kit is from Townsville International English School, guys. I think Kel would say definitely go to Townsville if you're thinking about coming to Australia and you haven't picked a city yet. So thanks again so much for joining me, Kit. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Alright guys, so I hope you enjoyed that episode today. Thanks again, Kit, from the Townsville International English School for coming on the podcast and sharing all of your knowledge about the IELTS exam. Guys, I hope this helps. I hope that if you are planning to do the IELTS exam in the future or if you've done it in the past 
and may need to do it again sometime soon. I hope that this episode helps. I would love to know what you think. So make sure you leave a comment below on the website and I will chat to you guys soon. Catch you guys. <laughs>